0: Our study is on the coming of Christ, and that's a very appropriate song for our study, because um, we are looking at Christ in three stanzas and a chorus. The first coming of Christ, another coming of Christ, the final coming of Christ, and all of it held together with a simple phrase that's repeated in Scripture over and over, the righteous man shall live by faith. It was expected of anybody who was expecting his coming to walk by faith. Each and every day that goes by, we step one closer, one day closer to the coming of Christ. I wanted to start this morning with something real simple. I wanted to wish you all a Merry Christmas. (laughs) I thought I'd be the first one to get it out there this year. 63 more days. Divide by seven, how many weeks do you got, choir? Not enough. <laughs> in nine, nine Sundays, we'll be having our Christmas service. Wow. Okay, well, actually, today is a Christmas sermon. I just wanted to get you in the mood for it. Okay, we turn the air conditioners down real low, so it's cold. And uh, we're going to look at the first coming of Christ today. The first coming of Christ and how that relates to the righteous man shall live by faith. Okay, so uh, where do we go? Let's try Isaiah chapter 8, please. Isaiah chapter number 8. We're going to talk about the fact that uh, in light of Christ's coming, I'm to live today as if today is the day. And yet I'm also to live as if my job isn't finished yet. When we talk about the coming of Christ, as I've already said, there are three specific comings that Scripture talks about. We talk about his birth. We call it the first coming. It's when he literally came down to this earth, dwelt among us. We have another coming. I call it the rapture of the church. A lot of people do. But another coming, he is coming for us, and that could happen at any moment. And then there is the final coming, theologically we call it the second coming of Christ, because that's when he literally comes down to the earth again, and that's his second coming, and that's when he sets up his kingdom to reign on this earth for a thousand years. And um, we're going to get to those other two soon, but first we want the first stanza. The first coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, is what we're going to take a quick look at here today. Actually, I don't know how quick it is. When I added up my notes, and I got to page 11 already, and I said, I've got to stop. Um, unless you guys have nothing else to do today. Um, I love Christmas. I love talking about it. And that's why I usually take the whole month of December to talk about Christmas. And I'm trying to compact that into one sermon. Alright, so let's see what happens. It might be two. We'll see. Isaiah 8, let's turn in verse 18. 18. It sounds like an interesting place to start, and it's just going to be right in the middle of a, of a thought, and we're going to do it anyway. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king And their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold, darkness, or distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. What an interesting passage that is. You may say, What is going on here, Pastor? Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel, and he's letting them know, You have rejected God's word. It's been open for you, available to you. Your relationship with the Lord is something you should have treasured, but instead you chose idolatry. You chose this God and that God, and, and uh, you turned your back from His Word. And as a result of that, you go from place to place looking for answers for trouble. And you're not going to find it anywhere but in the Lord Himself. But you refuse to do it. He says, the result of that is going to look like this. Distress, darkness, gloom of anguish, driven into darkness. So the picture just literally would be graphic enough, but this is much more than that. This is a spiritual darkening of one's heart. They don't know the truth. They don't seek the truth. And it's a sad picture. Chapter number 9 continues with the same picture, but it adds the hope. Verse number 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nations, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden, and the staff of their, of, on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, as in the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood, will be for burning fuel for the fire, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And all that I read to you this morning, did you find a Christmas card? How many times have we had one with Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6, right on the front cover? For unto us a child is born. Unto us the Son is given, and the government shall rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You know, part of that verse does reference the first coming of Christ. Part of it does. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The rest of the verse, and the ones to follow, speak of his second coming. His second coming when the government will rest on his shoulders. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or even of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom. Boy, I'm looking forward to seeing that day. Now, if we're standing here this morning in Jewish sandals and we heard Isaiah proclaim this passage to us for the very first time. We would not see a 2,000 year gap between the first and second coming of Christ. We would not understand such a thing. That's not in our, in our reckoning about the way the future has got to go. Because when the Lord gave this to the Jews in the first place, the first phrase, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the second phrase, the government with us on his shoulder, all look like one act. He's going to come, he's going to be born, he's going to take over, he's going to rule. And that's their perspective from the days of Isaiah. They thought, this is very natural, this is this is our Messiah. We call him the Christ in the Greek, Messiah in the Hebrew. He's the one that's promised in the Old Testament. He's coming and he will come and he will reign over the house of Israel on David's throne forever. That was a promise, wasn't it? That's what they read in their scriptures. That's what their prophets told to them. The Messiah would conquer all the enemies of the Jews and his kingdom will be the greatest of all the kingdoms. They could pull that out of people like Daniel and they could go to all kinds of other passages and find things to support that. But if their spiritual eyes had been opened, they would have seen in Isaiah's message something else as well. The Messiah was to undergo a terrible death on their behalf. They did not understand chapter 53. That Messiah who was coming was going to pay a terrible price for our sin. For our iniquity, he was chastened. We have that passage in Isaiah 53. In other words, the Old Testament prophets gave the information that the Messiah would come the first time to be born as a baby, to live among his people, they also told them he would be rejected as their Messiah. It's recorded in the Old Testament that he would be taken to a cross. It is recorded there that he would die on behalf of our sins. It also records that later he would come to this earth as a conquering Messiah to rescue His people and set up His kingdom. If their spiritual eyes were open, they would have seen that. But their eyes were not open. Their eyes were not open. That's what you just saw in chapter 8 when I read it to you. Where were they living? One word? Darkness. They did not understand. They did not understand. Matter of fact, if... Going with this Old Testament record, it seems to be so rare to find anyone living by faith in the coming of the Messiah. What God had promised to them. You don't see that recorded very often that somebody said, oh, I believe it exactly as God said it. Thankfully, we have several stories given to us in the scriptures recorded for us to read To show us that the record in Isaiah was true. And they did not come away discouraged when they heard these words. They were looking for their Messiah. Let me give you a picture of a group of folks here this morning. People you will recognize who lived in the light of the first coming of Christ in the Old Testament dispensation. And they had to walk by what? Let's go into their shoes for a few minutes. Uh, I I think, though, as we do this, we want to set this up right. I want you to notice, first of all, the striking similarities as I compare that generation that Isaiah is talking to with the generation that I live in right now. You're not going to like this picture. Back when Isaiah wrote in 700 B.C., those are approximate, approximate numbers I use, but um, he was a prophet about 200 years after Judah became a solo nation. After the 931 breakup of the kingdom where it went north and south, Judah was south. And about 200 years later, Isaiah would be writing. He would live of little more than a hundred years before that kingdom of Judah would fall to the Babylonians around 586. And so, when you give the date, I say 700 BC, it's, it's 700 years before Christ was born. But Isaiah is living in a in a group of people called the nation of Judah, and they're not right with the Lord. They're not right with the Lord. At the time of his writing, that generation that he lived among were so corrupt, so infested with sin, so depraved in all their conduct and in their mind, that even as he began this beautiful, beautiful uh, prophecy, I love the book of Isaiah, he starts it with a very alarming statement. Go with me to chapter 1. You don't have to go very far to back up to chapter number 1. Look at the way he immediately starts his message in verse number 2. Verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, he calls them. People weighed down with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. The word despised here. They despised the Holy One of Israel. It means to scorn means to abhor something. Not only had their hearts become hateful, but the words that spilled out of their mouth were hateful too. Don't be surprised by that. There's a little quote I wrote down many, many years ago when I was in Bible college. I heard somebody say this and I just wrote it down. I've never forgot it. Whatever you're filled with will spill out when you're bumped. I said, yeah, that's the way it is, isn't it? If you bump these people, guess what comes out of them? A hatefulness toward their own Lord. Isn't that terrible? Their hearts were black. Black. Have you ever noticed this? If you're reading through the Bible, and you get into the the heart of the prophets, how it's hard to keep reading. Because the story seems to go on and on and on and on, like... What is wrong with these people? Why is it always portrayed in such a way that they are condemned, condemned, condemned? God chose them. Didn't he? To be uniquely his. They were his special people. He blessed them. He he planned to have them multiply to such a degree that they would be a forever displayed to all the other nations of the earth of how great God is. That was his purpose in choosing them, by the way. He says, I didn't choose you because you were great or the largest of anybody else. I didn't choose you because... I chose you so that the world may see how great I am. So my glory will be shown to the whole world through you. How'd they do? Not a good story, is it? That's why the Old Testament's so hard to read. Because they didn't live up to that name. They, matter of fact, lived up very well to the name God gave them. Israel. Hebrew means I fight God. What a great name to live by. I fight God. And the story goes on and on and on in their rebellion and their complaining. And when you get to the book of Isaiah, God says. I've had it. I've had it with this. Go to chapter 5. You're not that far from there. And God starts a catalog of their sins. He starts to them one by one and says, this is what it looks like. I'm looking down from heaven down to you, and this is what I see. When you get to, I'm going to just jump into chapter 5. It's supposed to be a lovely song, by the way. It's not a lovely song. It's a really horrible chapter because he goes through all their condemnations. Chapter 5, verse 8. Most of these start with the same word, woe. Woe, he says in verse number 8, to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. That's called Greed. God saw it and God labeled it. What was one of their sins? Greed. Materialism was just driving the people on their way. Look down to verse number 11. Another woe. Verse number 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. We use the word hedonism here. In a technical term. Hedonism. Given over to pleasures. God says woe to a nation given over to pleasures. Chapter 5 verse 18. Another woe. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. And sins as if with a cart rope. Who says let him. That's speaking of God. Make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and it come to pass that we may know it. This is really audacious. <laughs> that They're standing up and saying, God, prove yourself. Prove yourself. This is what they're doing. This is a doubting faith, and I'm not using it in a simple form, or even as just somebody who's having a bad day. They actually question God's Word. They did not believe what God had said. That kind of doubt, God calls sin. And that's what they were doing. Verse number 20. Another woe. Woe to those who call evil good. Uh, Woo! uh, Good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Confusion of absolutes. God calls it a sin. The confusion of absolutes. That was that generation. Verse number 21. Whoa! To those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. You could call this humanism. It's human pride. is what it is. God always stands against pride. Always, always, always. He hates pride. A whole generation of pride. Verse 22, Woe, he says again. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drinks. There's an old word called debauchery. We don't use it a lot anymore. That's what it is. It's binging and carousals and all kinds of terrible pictures that come with this. Verse 22 gives you a glimpse of what that looks like. Verse 23, another woe. Who justify the wicked for a bribe. Who take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Injustice. Injustice. You got the list? Greed, materialism, hedonism, given over to pleasure, questioning God's word, confusing absolutes, humanism and human pride, sinful binging and carousing and injustice. Whose generation are we talking about? You might thought that you were reading the headlines of today's paper. That was Isaiah's generation too. See why it's called Dark. God plans to punish them for it. Chapter 5, verse 25, he wasn't done. He says, "On On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger is not spent, and his hand is still stretched out. That is one of the most potent little verses you'll find in the Old Testament. God is angry. He has sent out His arm to punish. And He won't bring it back. Whoa! Is there any wonder by the time you get to chapter 8 that it all looks hopeless? (laughs) They weren't following the Lord at all. And Isaiah starts to write, and I read it to you. He says, I and my children were here for signs. We're here for wonders in Israel. We're here about the Lord of hosts. And what do you do? You go and consult mediums. And you go to the spiritists. And you, you go to people who whisper and they mutter. And, and you you don't consult your God. Why not? He's the one with the answers. Should it, Should you go and talk to something that's dead to help you to live? That doesn't work. So they say, okay, we are go to the law, and we are going to the testimony. But you know what? They had, didn't have the eyes to see it. They didn't have the ears to hear it. And it says, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. I'd hate to live forever in the dark. They have no dawn. None. And they're going to pass through this land, and they're going to be hard-pressed, and they're going to be famished. And they turn around when they are hungry. They're going to get mad. And when they get mad, they're going to blame God. And they will look out on this earth. And it's all distress. And it's all darkness. And it's all anguish. Oh, did I say Merry Christmas already? You say, what in the world is all this about? Go to chapter 9, verse 2 again. Chapter 9, verse 2. The characteristics of these people. These people walked in darkness. Peruomai, Great little Greek word. It means that's where they lived. That's the course of their day. They just walked about in darkness. That's it. Everything was dark. Everything about their life, their life was dark. And it goes on to say they also lived in a dark land. This is probably one of the saddest phrases you'll ever see. Keta Oikeo. They settled down in it. They bought the house and said, we're going to stay here. They brought in their furniture. They settled down. This is where we live. Darkness was the only place they were going. And they settled for it. Isn't that sad to hear? They settled for it. Might as well get used to the world as we know it. It's never going to change. That was their perspective. That's where they lived. These are the people the Lord promised to come to. These are the people. The us. For Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That us were these people living in the darkness who believed and thought and spoke and acted and lived and settled down in darkness. And if you find that to be familiar perspective to what you see going on around us today, I wouldn't be surprised if you thought that too. If you looked at our world today and had hope that things are going to become righteous in our land, That there be peace in our world. This is the world these folks lived in. And they settled for darkness. That's what our world settles for now. Darkness. But we're here to talk about those who walk by faith, right? I wanted to show you the arena they lived in. I wanted to show you the area that they walked about. There were those who walked by faith in these dark days. Let's try a couple of New Testament passages. Let's make it easy. Let's go to Luke first. Let's go to the Christmas story. We're all set for this. Luke, let's start in chapter 1 though. We're going to set up for it here. Luke chapter number 1. Go to verse number 6 and find the first couple introduced to you. Luke chapter 1, verse 6, we're talking about a man named Zechariah and his wife named Elizabeth. They're in the verse just before that, verse 5. Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're part of the Christmas story, if you call it that, in that way, because they were the mother and father of John the Baptist. A miracle was about to take place that she should give birth to a child. We're not going to go into that whole story. I just want you to notice something. These are the folks that lived in that Old Testament economy where people lived in darkness. Where the greed and the hedonism and the pride and the confusion of absolutes and all that was true in the day that these folks lived. And yet, what does it say about them in verse 6? It says, they were were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. That's a unique couple in their day. That's a unique couple. By the way, look at verse 16. Just jump down the page a little bit. There's a reference here about the promise of the coming of Christ. And it's in reference to a guy named John the Baptist. And it says in verse 16, And he, John the Baptist, will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, for it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Was his job easy? Oh boy, that was a tough job to be called to. But he was there to take disobedient people and help them see that the Lord was coming. The Lord was coming. Chapter 1, verse 30. Not too many verses off. Verse 30. Let me introduce you to a young lady named Mary. She's pretty big to the Christmas story, by the way. She is the mother of Christ. And the angel said to her in verse 30, watch the words. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. What kind of generation did she live in? That same dark one. That's where she'd find her, but she found favor with God. By the way, that's the same Word used for a man named Noah. Just after God said that the people among Noah's day only thought and planned and acted out sin all day long. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Mary found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And notice what was said to her. The message. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. First coming or second coming? Second coming. He just gave the message to Mary about Christ's second coming. He will reign on the throne of David. There will be no end to his kingdom. That's just what Isaiah said too. And Mary said to the angel, Why? No, she didn't. How can this be? She wasn't referring to his reign. She wasn't referring to his coming. She was referring to How physically is this possible? I'm just a virgin. But the Lord made it very clear. The Messiah is coming. Did she believe it? Yes, she did. And she lived in those days. Oh, how about the man who was engaged to her? You remember his name? Joseph. I'll just give you his verse. You can look it up, but I'll read it to you. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, he's described. Remember, living in this dark, same dark generation, says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and it goes on to say what he was planning to do about finding Mary pregnant with a child. But being a righteous man, does it suddenly sound like this is a rare find? We have just on one hand so far, we've counted some. Let's go into the temple 33 days later. Go to Luke chapter 2, since you're still there. Luke 2, verse 22. 33 days later, you say, how do you get that number? It says in verse 22, In the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were complete. That's 33 days after a son is born. And so here they are. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That's Mary and Joseph. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. And look at the next phrase. It's so fun looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. This guy was doing just what the sermon series is talking about. He was looking for Christ to come. He was looking for it. In that black, dark generation. We got a man looking for Christ to come. Anna, chapter 2, verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Panael of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those, notice, who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. They were looking for who? The Messiah. She was speaking to him. This is what it's all about. This is the promise. The coming of our Messiah. So what we have here in a handful of people are those who men and women lived by faith. Their testimonies show it. They believed in the coming of Christ and they lived in the midst of a very wicked and dark world. Let's go 30 years later. Just a couple, just three more examples. John the Baptist. Oh, we referenced him earlier at his birth. But guess what? He went about proclaiming. Chapter 3, Luke 3, verse three, four, three 4, 3 and 4 and so on. And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the books of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Why? Because he's coming. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be made straight. The rough roads will be made straight. Smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. That's from Isaiah 40. Guess what? That's speaking of the second coming of Christ. Some people in commentary say, no, that was the Babylonian captivity and all that. And they, they equate Isaiah 40 to the Babylonian captivity and the release and how wonderful that's going to be. However, that is not, it can't possibly be the answer because. Christ did not come at that time. And Isaiah 40 talks about him coming. If he didn't come, it couldn't have been fulfilled yet. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 40 reads. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has entered. Her iniquity has been removed. Her sin, uh, and she has received the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice calling in the wilderness. And he talks about the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it. The mouth of the Lord is spoken. That's second coming terminology. And it has to have a cross in there too, by the way, because you don't forgive sins any other way. What these these folks are screaming out to us in their prophecies and in their statements, and especially what John was declaring to them, was Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Now, There was a first coming already, and he recognized who he was. But there had to have been a second coming, too. That's the only way these would be fulfilled. By the way, let's add another guy named Andrew. You ever hear of a disciple named Andrew? Let me read his testimony. It's in John chapter 1. You're recording this in verse 35 and so on. I'll read it. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, that's John the Baptist, And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He says, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day. And it was about the tenth hour. One of those two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he went and found his brother Simon. And he said to him, We have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. The one we're looking for. Andrew was among a few who were looking for the Messiah to come. He says, we found him. We found him. Philip's another name. If we go into Philip's story, Philip went and found Nathaniel. Remember? Remember? It's in John chapter 1, verse 45. And he says right away, We have found him who the Moses in the law and the prophets spoke. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then we could go into a long story about where all the prophets said he's coming. He believed it. He believed it. He says, we found him. We found him. What, What I find is this really remarkable thing. All the prophecies I have on my page, and I'm not going to read all of these off. You can find them in Daniel 7. You can find them in Deuteronomy 18. You can find them in uh, Micah chapter 5 verse 2. You can find it in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. All of those are records that Jesus Christ is coming. And it identifies it so clearly. And it's Philip who says, I believe it. All the religious leaders could look it up too and say the same thing. I see it. I see it. I know that Christ is going to come. But they did not believe it. Philip did. Andrew did. John the Baptist did. Mary and Joseph did. Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth did. Anna and Simeon did. It's more than just knowing it in the Word, folks. It's believing it and living in light of it. That's called faith. Because we could talk about the story of Christmas all day long. A lot of people do. But how many people take it to their heart and say, I believe it and I live accordingly. In a dark world like ours, greed, materialism, hedonism, giving over to pleasure, questioning God's word, Here's a big one confusing absolutes, humanism and the pride that goes with it, sinful binging and carousing, and injustice. We need people who walk by faith. Even though this world is so dark, so dark as it is, and we clearly see this, it's time for us who believe the message to live it out. Do we believe Christ is coming? Absolutely so. Do we live like Christ is coming? Do we live like that? You know what? You are going to be so unique in this society if you live like that. Different from all those who are around us. And I think, folks, this world needs to see it. They need to see faith in action. They need to see people who not just had the words of it, but they live each day as a firm believer that Jesus Christ is coming. He proved it in His first coming. And there were people who believed it and lived by faith that Christ was coming the first time. We're waiting for His second time. That He comes and meets us and we go up to meet Him in the air. Are we living like that's going to happen? That's called faith. That's the difference it all makes. Because there are people right now who still walk in darkness. There are people right now who live in a dark land. They need the light, don't they? Guess what you are? you are a reflection of the light of Christ to a world that's that dark. Remember the message? For Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And we expect him to come anytime, don't we? So let's live like it. The world needs that. Let's live like it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples of those who walk by faith. They've just been presented quickly here this morning, but we know their stories. We've read it before. And now we stop and look again and see that was not an easy thing for them to do in their day and age. It was a dark time. And yet they still walk by faith. May we take heart, Lord, from this. May we realize that we too can walk by faith. In a dark world like ours, we can walk by faith. Living as if Christ is coming today. Lord, may we be found to be the, just like the scripture says, the just that live by faith. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming in the first place. Thank you for being willing to come and live among us in this dark land. Thank you for being willing to die for the sins that have left us in darkness in the first place. Thank you for giving us the light. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for saving our souls. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that you've instilled in us. Thank you for the promise of your coming. We long to be with you, Lord Jesus. We long to be like you, Lord Jesus. Help us to walk by faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.